Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon. Thank you for attending this lecture at the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. If you're interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event. Our speaker today, Peter Gallo, is a qualified lawyer admitted to practice in Scotland, Hong Kong, and New York. He has an MBA and an LLM in international criminal law. He spent 19 years as an investigator based in Hong Kong, working on investigations in some of the most corrupt countries in Asia and was a leading authority on the identification and detection of money laundering. In 2011, Mr. Gallo was recruited by the United Nations as an investigator in the Office of Internal Oversight Services, Investigations Division in New York, the office that is supposed to investigate corruption, fraud, and other criminality in the organization. After his insights and personal experiences there, he became an outspoken critic of the UN particularly with the regard to the manner in which corruption is covered up. In April 2016, he testified before a congressional committee on the lack of accountability and the organization's failure to address the widespread sexual abuses in peacekeeping missions, and was one of the founders of the group Hear Their Cries, which was established specifically to fight the United Nations' abuse of privileges and immunities to protect UN staff members accused of child sex offenses. Mr. Gallo has been quoted extensively in the international media and appeared on television in a number of countries worldwide. Please join me in welcoming our speaker. Thank you very much. I'm uh, grateful for the opportunity. I shall try and make this as, uh, as entertaining as I can, given the subject matter that I have to deal with. I'm uh, going to tell you now, when I speak through this in front of the, the wardrobe mirror, I have no problem bringing it in in less than 59 minutes. In front of a live audience, I'm going to speak for an hour and a half. The reason I tell you this is because if you have your car on a meter, for example, and you're from Scotland and you've only paid for the hour, <laughs> that's on you, okay? But since I left the UN, which was uh, St. Patrick's Day 2015, March. Uh, what I've done is essentially drifted. I, I tell people, in, not entirely in jest, that I don't know if I'm retired early or if I'm having what young people call a gap year. <laughs> I'm, I'm now into my third gap year, coming out from my fourth one. It's, it's okay. Um, until about a year ago, and what happened is, say, people call me up. I live a very interesting life. I don't know where the next bout of trouble is coming from. And about a year ago, uh, a chap phoned me up and he said, I want to sue the UN. And I giggled and I said, yeah, you know you can't do that, don't you? And he said, no, nah, I've got an idea. So out of politeness, I listened to him. His name was Andrew McLeod. And uh, 20 minutes into the phone call, I said, hold on a minute. I, I like this. Uh, count me in. Um, I was in Edinburgh, he was in London, that's, that's 400 miles. And I said, I'm going to jump on an airplane, come down and talk to you. And he said, well, can you, can you go down to Geneva on the weekend? I 
Well, yeah, I can go to Geneva. Um, so three of us got together in Geneva, and we formed this organization called Hear Their Cries, which, if you think I'm unpopular with the UN, I've managed to make myself unpopular with NGO communities as well. The reason for that, largely, is about, uh, I think possibly two or three months ago now, there was a major sex scandal broke in the UK press involving a, a charity called Oxfam, which uh, is not you know, an American organization, but it is probably the biggest and best known charity organization in the UK. I missed the significance of this, uh, but the news broke on a Sunday, and I'm used to UN sex scandals, and quite frankly, they blow in and out on a daily basis, and it's very easy to get inured and hardened to it. And it was Andrew who pointed out something that I didn't realize at the beginning. He says, the trouble with the UN is it's very remote. People don't relate to it. But Oxfam is personal. Everybody in the UK has paid a penny, I've paid a pound to Oxfam one time or other. There's an Oxfam charity shop in every high street in every town in the country. The next time I managed to speak to him was, I think, the Wednesday, by which time he had done 20 television interviews. Um, culminating in this one when he spoke on CNN and came out and he said, the figure that we've been using and we had been discussing ourselves for some time, that by our estimates there are 60,000 women and children raped or sexually abused by UN personnel over the last 10 years. That is an estimate. I am the guy who actually did the background work and substantiated. Do I actually believe it's true? In reality, I probably believe it is a very conservative estimate the real number's higher. However, we'll get back to that. That actually elicited a response. So they threw down a gauntlet on the, the question on that, and the, uh, the UN press uh, secretary responded with a a tweet, as is now the, the modern habit, basically within the hour, and confirmed, specified that the UN would not claim immunity for sexual offences against children. Sounds like a bit of a breakthrough, first such admission in 72 odd years since the UN's been set up, but hold on because I'm going to come back to that and pick it apart later. Right, what I'm going to talk about, however, is corruption in the UN. Now, a lot of people complain to me about a lot of different things. Like the post office is corrupt, and the bus company in Bombay is corrupt, and all the rest of it, yeah, uh, that's very good. My point with this is there's a multiplier effect. If the post office is all corrupt, your mail just doesn't arrive, and half of it goes missing. And in the great scheme of things, oh well, tough, too bad. When you've got an investigation function which is flawed, it's, there's a reason for that. It's protecting something else. There is this idea that it involves bribery. And when you talk about corruption, people immediately go straight to bribery. To the best of my knowledge and belief, there is not a significant problem with bribery in the UN headquarters in New York. There are one or two very interesting cases, the John Ash and Francis Lorenzo case, if anybody wants to talk about that. There's some very shady dealings going on. But what is very uh, significant is other strange decisions that are made on very strange things, on the most warped logic that you will ever come across in your life, 
you have to understand, and I'll talk about the noble mayor principle in a minute, that in the UN, you don't have to bribe people, the job itself is its own reward. That sounds very remarkable, it sounds quite altruistic. Not quite, bear with me. Still, strange and illogical decisions don't actually make sense unless there's money at the back of it somewhere. That may hold true for what I've said about the, the headquarters in New York, the missions scattered around the world, that is a completely different story. Now, Tolkien go draw a short line from bribery to the budget. Everybody wants to talk about budget, so let me start there. The UN budget, for people who don't know, is broken down into two parts. There's the regular budget, which is, if you like, the tick-over cost of the organization. And there's also peacekeeping, which is budgeted separately. And as US taxpayers, I'm very sure that you're more concerned with the 13.4 billion for the last biennium. That works out that 3.4 billion of it is US taxpayers' money. And people think, well, that's a lot of money. I'd rather people didn't get fixated on the scale of the money, because in government spending terms, it really isn't an awful lot, right? It's that much, when I put it on the graph, it's less than the budget of the New York Police Department. Right? It's less than the budget of the Center for Disease Control. Right? It's less than the Coast Guard, and it's dwarfed when you consider unemployment. And if that's unemployment compared to the UN, it's dwarfed by the military budget. The military budget's dwarfed by Medicare and healthcare costs. Now, there is an, a, a, an argument that goes that it's good for the United States because it's cost-effective, right? And it's cheap. We get this peacekeeping on the cheap because it's half a percent of the defense budget. Yeah, there's a lot I can say about that. Um, what it reminds me is obviously the commercials that you get on television in this country for pharmaceuticals. Foreigners, like, we don't have that in the UK, so I find them fascinating. You know the ones that say, do you have, you know, mild to severe hiccups? Ask your doctor about fix-it-all. And then they spend more time listing the side effects, <laughs> which always have including death. <laughs> for my hiccups, you know, great, thanks. All right. The question I'm going to come back to is to whether the peacekeeping is actually doing the job it counts for. Now, does it matter? I didn't say look at the, the total cost, the amount of money involved. Right? My background is a fraud investigator. You know, pardon me for thinking that way. And I think, okay, so that's the budget. How much of that is being lost to fraud, waste, and abuse? All organizations lose money to fraud, waste, and abuse. Right? The challenge is, if we can sort of keep it down towards single figures. In the UN's case, if it was only 10%, and that's an if and an only 10%, you're still talking out of that of $1.35 billion with a bet, which is knocking on for real money. It's more than I can afford to write a check to cover. But even then, right? question is, well, if we're losing $1.35 billion, who's getting it? Because the primary fraud risk in any organization is the insider. Your organization is at greater risk of being defrauded because of somebody on the payroll, not because of somebody knocking on the door and trying to sell you snake oil. 
question is who? Are we talking about UN officials or third parties? So when I joined the UN, rather naively perhaps, I thought that might be kind of the sort of thing that with a background in fraud investigation and money laundering, that might be what they wanted me to do. On my first day, I asked a question and I asked, what is the operative definition of the word fraud? <coughs> Couldn't find it online, so I thought I'd better ask someone. Which makes a difference, because as in with all sort of legal terms, you need to know how it's defined in order to know what it is in order to get around it. Huh? So the answer was, oh, we don't have one. I should have known then that there's something not right here. But they did not have a working definition of fraud. And the excuse is, well, we don't need one because we're only doing administrative internal investigations. Okay, let's just leave that for a side. Five years later, in May 2016, this report came out. And this is very significant. It was done by the Joint Inspection Unit, which is a management consultancy type think tank operation based out of Geneva. And on this occasion, they looked at the fraud detection and response in the UN system and concluded, guess what? You are rubbish. The organization didn't even have a definition of the word fraud. And I'm thinking, well, I could have told you that. <laughs> and nobody asked me. I'll come back to this one. Because again, out of this budget, what is that money spent on? 30% of it, $4 billion is spent on procurement, procuring goods and services. And if you go back into the history, and if you look at misconduct in the UN, you go back five, ten years, ten, um, there was this whole question of the procurement task force investigating procurement fraud in the UN. That ran into political difficulties, it was closed down. It was successful, the former procurement director went to jail for fraud right, and money laundering. And after that, OIOS, the office I worked for, cleaned everything up and said, there's nothing else here, no more fraud, let's go on. Then people start thinking, oh, hold on a minute, that doesn't quite sound right. Because my question is not just that whether or not there's any fraud in that procurement budget, but the question is where? And again, I had a background in money laundering and terrorist financing, and I'm working in Asia in some interesting jurisdictions. And the question is, where are the connections to corruption and terrorism? Uh, nobody else was very interested in that subject, just me. Does it matter? If you look at where the UN is deployed, this is not rocket science, it shouldn't come as a shock to anyone. There are something like, uh, I think it's 19 UN peacekeeping missions around the world. The big ones there um, in the Congo and uh, two in Sudan, the budget's running at over a billion dollars a year. When you compare the locations of where those UN missions are and corruption, guess what? This comes as a shock. The UN is operating in the most corrupt countries in the world. Now, you cannot measure corruption, really. But what you can measure is perceptions of corruption. So if ever you need or are vaguely interested in finding out about a country you know nothing about, you go to transparency.org, which is Transparency International, and every year they publish this league table called the Corruption Perceptions Index, which is a league table of countries believed to be corrupt, and the relative rankings of them. So, 
Here's one for example, Somalia. Somalia has got a score, a CPI score of 10. The scoring system runs from zero, which is like so bad that you know, they couldn't fill out a form, uh, and 100, which is, I don't know, heaven. Um, the United States is, does not come up at 100, it comes in the high 80s. New Zealand, one or two others tend to beat you on that one. Don't worry about it. There are 193 countries in the world if you define a country as a member state of the United Nations. Transparency International do not actually uh, monitor 193 countries. Guess what? They only monitor 176. And Somalia is at the absolute bottom, which is a bit of a shame. Never mind. There is a peacekeeping mission in Somalia. It's actually not a UN mission, it's AMISOM, which is a joint mission. Let's not go there. They're supposed to be the ones doing the heavy lifting. But there is a UN mission as well. Fine. That is the UN assistance mission in Somalia. It has a budget of $48 million. Great. And they are spending that on this, that, and the other, including one particular project, which is a plan to return Somali refugees uh, from Kenya back into, um, you know, back into Somalia. And that has a budget of $500 million. Now, the accountancy graduates in the room have worked out that, wait a minute, hold on. If you had a budget of 48, how could you have spent 500 on that? I didn't lie to you, I just was slightly precise with the definitions. The 3.4 billion, the, the, sorry, 13.4 billion of the UN budget, that was the mandatory budget. There are voluntary contributions. The 500 million is a voluntary contribution made up from that. The next question you're going to ask then is, okay, so the 3.4 billion of the US taxpayers' money isn't the total amount of money that the US taxpayer spends. What is the total amount? The answer is, I don't know. The reason I don't know is not because I'm lazy, stupid, or not interested in finding out. The reason is because the US government cannot, will not, or does not publish the figures. I'm afraid you're going to have to take that one up with someone else. Now, still on this subject, as I mentioned to you, you know, given my background, I thought perhaps I might be doing fraud investigations. No, nope, not quite. What used to happen, and I'll talk about the filtering system in a minute, is that OIOS, OIOS was very good at not investigating anything financial. Anything involving the UN's interaction with the private sector, with procurement fraud or anything like that, would be dismissed as a management issue. If it was a management issue, it wasn't staff misconduct. If it wasn't staff misconduct, it wouldn't get investigated. <coughs> so, this was, uh, there was all sorts of politics that went behind this, but my office did investigate OCHA, which is the Office of Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. But all they did was they looked at three NGOs that they dealt with, right? all of them working in Somalia, AFREC, uh, one called Hardo and one called Murdo. And they didn't, again, look at everything across the board. In the Murdo case, they only looked at two projects, and they found fraud of at least 70%. 70% of the money that the UN was giving to this NGO don't know where it went. It certainly was not used to dig holes for water wells, schools, or for the benefit of the population. Don't know where it went. The Argo case, they looked at three specific projects. The fraud 
risk there was running at 73%. And the AFREC looked at 12 cases, 12 different projects. The fraud was not going on for 79%. Right. Now, if you're interested in this, those reports were leaked. Fox News got hold of them. Fox News posted them on the website. You can actually download the reports and read them. They're very interesting, particularly the bit which says that no UN staff members were implicated in the embezzlement of any of this money. I don't actually know how anybody could make that conclusion because guess what? Don't know where the money went. Only know that the money disappeared. But apparently I asked too many questions. How do we know if it just disappeared? How do we know where it didn't end up? It did not end up. Now, we're thinking Somalia. Terrorist financing. We'll fill it in. Where do terrorist organizations get their money from? Trust me, all you need to know about this, it sums up as pretty much every sin in the book. Right? Um, charitable donations. Extortion. What's the difference? Well, if the guy just shows you the AK-47, you can call it a charitable donation. If he actually sticks it up your nose, it's probably extortion. All right? Somalia has not had a civil government for the last 20 years. They did, however, have an organization called Al-Shabaab. Right? Um, if you've never heard of that, that is their corporate logo. I don't actually read Arabic, but that tells me all I need to know. Right? What happened in that case? They actually found evidence in the course of the investigation email traffic going back and forwards and saying, saying the guy from Al-Shabaab wants his money. Now hold on, <laughs> you would think that somebody was going to get excited about this and put his hand up and say, wait a minute, this is, this is terrorist financing, something ought to be done about this. The answer is no. In fact, it gets better. When Ocha got the report, not only did they not do anything, they kept it in the bottom drawer and didn't actually share it with any of the member states for about six months. Why? Well, remember I said a lot of the projects are funded by voluntary contributions. It's very difficult to go to someone and ask for $500 million. Oh, and by the way, whilst I'm here today, let me show you this report, which says that 80% of the money that you gave us last year has evaporated and we don't know where it is. Things move on, they disappear. Now, let me give you something to think about. Here's something shocking. Wars cost money. Right? Not in terms of the Second World War, not that it was not funded, but that was funded by the US taxpayer. Thank you. <laughs> Think of the conflicts that there are going on around the world today. As I mentioned earlier, there's something like 19 peacekeeping missions around the world. Normally, in other venues, when I give this talk, I offer 20 or sometimes even $50, depends how much cash I've got on me, to anybody who can name one of the combat, the combatant factor factions in any of those armed conflicts that there's peacekeeping mission there. This is the IWP. I'm slightly concerned that if I offer you the money, somebody in this room will know one, and I'll go home poorer, so I'm not going to do so. But the logic is this: if you have an armed conflict, and as I say, not not a state-on-state -state Second World War conflict, but the kind of conflicts that we have around the world today, there is something in that conflict which is generating money. 
it's going to vary probably from case to case, but something is producing some money. You need that money in order to fund things like arms and ammunition, training and all the rest of it, and you need the arms and ammunition to keep the war going. Okay, so imagine that you were running such a, you were a warlord running such a, an insurgency. What would you do? Obviously very honest people in Washington, because I'll tell you what I would do. I would be skinning 10% off the top to cover my own personal expenses. I have legitimate expenses. Fast cars, fast women, <laughs> expensive whiskies and various other things. My pension fund, for crying out loud. Alright? And if it's happening on one side, if you're dealing with a civil war, it's going to be happening on both sides. So, you've got a conflict and that conflict is generating something, mining revenue or whatever it is. If you stop the conflict, or the conflict itself fizzles out, and you put a peacekeeping mission in its place, whatever was generating the money is probably still going to be generating the money. Except for now, you've got the UN pumping industrial quantities of money into the very regions where you had this conflict going on. That's going to change the dynamics a little bit, because now there's an awful lot more money coming out of the system, if you are kind of person who would be catching some of that, and why wouldn't you be? It's very interesting if you look at things like where a, a UN mission turns up in a place like Juba. Isn't it funny that residential accommodation in a town like Juba in the Sudan immediately jumps to the prices that you'll pay in Manhattan? Um, we're talking Juba here. Right? Why? Because the only people who are going to be there are going to be UN personnel or other NGOs and the companies paying for it. Which is great if you're a landlord. Other things, procurement contracts, there's a lot of money to be made supplying the UN. So there's a lot of money coming out of that system. And that is fine and it will keep going because guess what? So long as there's a peacekeeping mission, that money is going to be there. And I mentioned earlier that wars cost money. Well, actually, they don't really cost a huge amount. As they say, the problem with terrorism is that it's actually relatively cheap. So what we've actually got in terms of um, a cash flow model, if you want to call it that, is this. And that is a nice little earner, if I can use that expression, and that will continue to be the case unless and until peace breaks out. If peace breaks out, everybody loses. And again, if it's happening on one side, it's happening on the other, sorry. But the reason I talk you through this, and why I've come to this point, is because of two questions which I think are very related, but significant, very, very important, and that is, to what extent is the corruption in UN peacekeeping actually financing the armed conflicts that were there supposed to maintain the peace. And secondly, to what extent is that corruption a disincentive for resolving conflicts? Now, slight change of subject. What does that have to do with anything? Does anybody know what it is? Shout it out, don't be shy. There's no money for answering this. 
Secretary General was, uh, he was Swedish, uh, he was shot down over a mission in a, uh, Congo. The Congo. And nope. He was in a DC-3. That isn't this. This is a B-17. Your aircraft spotting skills need to be improved, but we'll let you off. <laughs> but that was an incredible... 1943, the U.S. Air Force starts deploying to the, the U.K. in significant numbers and working the day shift over Germany. Okay? And aircraft are coming back. You'll notice that this one hasn't landed properly. And aircraft are coming back badly damaged. And some of them are coming back with their wings so badly shot up that it's uh, defying the laws of physics that you could keep up in the air. So, being a good government department, there's information being collected and collated. And there was significant statistical evidence to show that a lot of these aircraft are coming back with the wings shot up. Consequently, the evidence is that the, the conclusion that has to be drawn is the wings need reinforced. Until it got to Washington, and there was a center for naval analysis and a mathematician called Abraham Walt who contradicted it and pointed out that the logic was wrong. The ones with the wings shot up were okay. They got back. Don't worry about them. The wings are fine. It says the ones that have been shot up in the body, in the fuselage, are the ones that you lost. That's where the armor has to go. That's where the reinforcement has to go. And it makes perfect sense. And what it was, was something called survivorship bias. Because you're looking, you're looking at the wrong statistical um, uh, pool of numbers. You don't want to study the figures of the aircraft that just come back. You need to study the figures of all the aircraft that got attacked. If you understand that, and you accept that, you start to understand the statistics of how that relates to 60,000 women and children being raped. Now, okay, so I'm merely talking about corruption in the UN, and nobody's contradicted me, and nobody's questioned me, and nobody's doubted that there's any corruption in the UN. So here's a question. Can the UN prove there is no corruption in the UN? And the answer to that is yes. There's a wonderful little intellectual model that applies. And it works like this. There is no corruption in the UN, and we know this because nobody ever reports any. And nobody ever reports any because there is no corruption in the UN. And that makes logical and perfect sense. Shut up, thank you very much, move on. And on the rare occasion when somebody does report it, the investigations never find any. And the reason they never find any is because there isn't any. <laughs> laughing, you think, yeah. But that model works if two things are in play. One of which is pressure on the reporting of misconduct. You look at the way that the staff will report or will be afraid to report misconduct. And the other one is, guess what, the way that the investigations and the investigations of that misconduct are carried out. If both of them are controlled, controlled meaning controlled, <laughs> with me, thank you, that model works, there's no corruption in the UN, we can all move on. I'll come back to that. Because I'm going to give you something else to think about. Imagine you're setting up a company, right? You're setting up a business, whatever, and there's all sorts of Company lawyers will keep you occupied for hours discussing the relative merits of setting up an LLC in Delaware and various other boring things. What if you were setting up a criminal organization? Right? Imagine it's the head of the mafia. Right? Don Corleone goes in with his cat to see his lawyer. 
saying we're setting up an organization. How do we how do we set it up? We're not interested in revenue. Don't worry about the revenue. Money just falls in. We're not actually worried about paying tax either. We've got pots of money. What we're concerned about is risk. We don't want to be held accountable for anything anywhere in the world ever. And then you start to laugh and you say you can't do that. Right? Watch me. Right? What are we what are we concerned about? What are the risks? Well, the first one obviously is we don't want to be criminally prosecuted for anything. Fair enough. We don't want to be sued. We don't want any internal investigations or a compliance function. We need to be protected from that. We need to be protected from internal whistleblowers. We don't want any labor issues with any labor tribunals. And it would help if we never had any adverse press coverage. And you're laughing and you think, you, you can't have that. Right? You want the bet? The UN has that same set of priorities. And what you mustn't ever do is do what I do and think of the, the UN, the leadership of the UN, as a mafia organization. Because trust me, as a model, it works. Okay? But to understand the UN, first I have to do another little history lesson. You have to understand the noble mayor principle. Bit of history. League of Nations, 1920s, after the First World War. For the first time, uh, an international civil service has been set up. And the question arises, how do we pay these people who work here? Because they all come from different countries and there's different salary levels, so they set up this committee under a guy called George Noblemayer, and rightly or wrongly, they came up with this figure and this idea that we have to pay everybody the same. Okay, that's fair enough. And we have to set the salaries at the, uh, akin to the highest paying government jobs of any member state of the League of Nations in order to attract the best quality people. Okay, fine. And that was basically the model that was carried on when the UN was established after the Second World War. There's something called the ICS, the International Civil Service Commission, which sort of manages this process. The best paying government jobs anywhere in the world, ladies and gentlemen, tend to be, would you believe, the US federal government is up there, Sweden, Germany. So, in theory, if you are Swedish and you work in the ministry in Stockholm doing whatever job, and you transfer to the UN to do a similar job at a similar level, you're going to get the same amount of money. Actually, it doesn't work that way, because the ICSE formula is so complicated, nobody can understand it, and you end up getting a lot more money. Um, so, I'll give you an example of how it works in, principle, in practice. And the one thing I have forgotten was uh, the FBI director's salary. If anybody knows what the FBI director gets, let me know. All right? If I had stayed, this lady would have been my boss. She was, took over as the Under Secretary General of Oversight. She was, at the time, the Commissioner for Audit, the government of the Philippines. Fine. Until, as I say, she got a phone call one day, and under very strange circumstances, the UN, you've got to understand, takes over 12 months to employ anybody. Right? The, the bureaucracy of just taking on board another junior office clerk or a driver is, takes over 12 months. This lady did not apply for the job. You're expected to believe there's nothing suspicious about this, but of all the people who applied for this, it's essentially it's a cabinet level post. None of them were good enough, so the UN had to widen the pool, and if you know anything about procurement fraud, a bell's ringing in your head about now. Yeah, don't worry about it. Um, so they they called her up and said, would you be interested? 
and they gave her an interview, which she herself admitted she didn't do very well in, and then three weeks later, flashed a bang time. Bang, she's got the job. 172,000. Right, excellent. Thank you, madam. There you go. The highest paying government salary that you will get in the government of the Philippines is less than 40 a year. It's good money in the Philippines, right? So, how it actually works, of course, is when she gets the job as head of uh, OIOS, she gets an eight-fold salary increase. That's assuming she was on 39.9 and she wasn't, right? And the Under Secretary General pulls 236,000 a year, and the, the FBI director gets what? 171. There you go. Well, the Supreme Court justices don't. So tell me how they how the noble mayor principle works. Don't even think about it. But anyway, it's the same. It's fine. But what if you come from Rwanda? What if you come from a third world country? You lose that job in the UN. You lose. You're not going to live in the US. Your kids aren't going to get an education, your school and all the rest of it. You will hang on to that job. And that's just human nature. Now, so we've got all these various risks. And how does the UN Secretary General protect himself? Well, guess what? Start with this one. Don't want to be criminally prosecuted. Not a problem. Don't worry about it. The 1946 Convention on Privileges and Immunities. Now, don't read that. Too many words. Right? Which basically says, um, shall be immune, staff members shall be immune for things in their official capacity. It is the same kind of immunity as US consular staff working in Paris or Bogota or Karachi get because their US consular staff is called functional immunity. And here is the question that we have. When you're looking at sexual offenses, why are you talking to me about functional immunity? It is no part of anybody's job in the UN to be having sex with anybody else. Sorry. So if you're not part of your job spec, it's whatever you do is not in your official capacity, so immunity shouldn't apply. Well, guess what? Mission creep. The UN insists that it does. Civil litigation. You don't want to be sued. Don't worry about that. Because of the immunity, drafting the convention in 1946, they thought about that. Article 29. They said, well, what about the guy who delivers the bagels in the morning? What about the window cleaner if he doesn't get paid? There has to be some kind of mechanism for dealing with civil disputes. So the UN Secretariat was directed to go and do something so that there's a means of settling contractual disputes. And they just never bothered. You know, they've been busy. It's only been 72 years. So nothing's been done. So there is no mechanism. So nothing happens. The UN basically, through negligence, gets the thick end of a million people in Haiti, go sick with cholera, 10,000 people die. And the UN's answer is, oh, we have immunity. Not my problem, buddy. Go away. Internal whistleblowers. They're fun. Right. The UN has an ethics office. It's very difficult not to point out at this point that Switzerland also has a navy. Okay? But in order to explain, and I'm going to... Uh, spend some time on this and I've changed my own mind and talk about myself. Who doesn't like to talk about himself? Right? Um, 
but there's a there's a legislative um, reason why I want to do this. How it works in the UN is you have to have something called a protected act. And what is a, a protected act for whistleblowing purposes? Well, either for someone who's reported misconduct or if they've cooperated with an investigation. You do that, that's a protected act. If you then suffer retaliation as a result of having done that, you apply to the ethics office. What the ethics office will do is they will hold a preliminary review to determine if the protected act was a contributing factor, just a contributing factor in the retaliation that followed. What's wrong with that? What could possibly be wrong with that? So, let me tell you my story, one of them, right? A protected act. Did I report misconduct? Yes, I did. I reported a case of harassment, abuse of authority. Why? You're, they tried to get me to sign a performance improvement plan without telling me what my performance shortcomings were. Okay, right? Um, and I'll pressure me to sign it. I will come back to this, but don't worry. Uh, so I said, wait a minute, that's harassment, that's misconduct. Did I get retaliated against? Oh, mama. Right? Um, most people, I know if you get an annual report from your boss, annual review, and you get three quarters of a page if you're very lucky, a paragraph saying Johnny has been very good this year and has met his sales targets, blah blah blah. And not me, no. 23 pages, single line spacing. They, yeah, they went through absolutely everything I did. There are undiscovered tribes up the Amazon who will tell you that was retaliation. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Okay? But I got this I got this annual appraisal and I said, ah, no, this is this is retaliation. So when I give it to the ethics office, uh, the ethics office said, hmm. Right, preliminary review. No, they said, when you made a complaint, there was no evidence of wrongdoing. I'm sorry? Right, no evidence. I said, wait a minute, the regulation actually says that when you complain about, you make a report of misconduct, there's be information or evidence. I gave you a 2,000 word memo. What do you think the 2,000 words were? It was not my mother's lasagna recipe, I'll tell you that for a fact. But they said, no, there's no evidence. Fine, okay. Let's not, uh, let's not go on about that. Um, so there's no protected act. And by the way, they said, your bad annual appraisal was due to previously documented performance shortcomings. Really? <coughs> yeah, that, that would be the documented shortcomings that were documented that I complained about that I didn't have. There you go, doesn't matter. There was no retaliation. Um, no retaliation goes in the bin. And uh, there you go, fine. Okay, there's an object lesson in this, right? and that, that is not an unusual case. Uh, when Government Accountability Project did a study of them in, I think in 2013, 2012, sometimes then, they were able to prove out of the UN's own reports that 96% of applications for protection against uh, retaliation were dismissed on that on a similar basis. That embarrassed them, so what they did, don't worry, they changed the reporting standards and made it very difficult to compare like from like from then on in. What it shows, however, all right, in the UN, culture will beat the policies and procedures. There's nothing wrong with the rules, it's the way the rules are actually applied. I'll give you another example, because this one's quite interesting, because it has international implications happened to have gone on about the very same time. Right. 
China was lobbying for membership of the UN Human Rights Council, which is supposed to be the supreme body for human rights around the world. Okay, fine, great. Okay, now, the uh, UNHCR were asked about Chinese human rights activists who were campaigning lobbying against this. UNHCR is based in Geneva. In order for a Chinese person to go to Geneva to protest about that decision, they need a visa to go to Switzerland. How do you get a visa? You'll get a visa because one of the NGOs, human rights NGOs, will give you an invitation. That will get you into Switzerland. How do you get into the, the UN uh, system, the Palace of Justice or whatever? You need a grounds pass. So the, the NGO will contact the UN and say, we want grounds passes for this. So guess what? It's the UN, the Office of High Commissioner for Refugees, who know because of the grounds passes that they've got to issue, who is coming from China. <clears throat> and the Chinese government said, give us their names. And UNHCR said, okay. And one staff member, a girl called Emma Riley, went nuts about this and said, we can't do this. You're exposing these people to a risk of, of serious harm. You can imagine what happened to Emma's career after that is because they were gunning for her. Right? But it was all about this lady. This was the, the, the poster woman for it. Her name was Kaohsiung Lee. She was a human rights lawyer in China. Um, she pitched up with a group of others with their tickets to go to Switzerland to, you know, to protest at that meeting. They were all detained, not allowed to fly, turned away at the airport. Kaohsiung Lee was arrested. Right? Uh, taken into custody, and that was September 2013. Okay, now bear in mind, Emma had been complaining about this since March that year. Okay, a month later in October, she was charged with a criminal offence of picking quarrels and provoking troubles, which I'm sure is a very serious offence and sounds a lot worse in Chinese. Right? Uh, she was held in custody for the best part of uh, several months till February, when she was transferred to a hospital and she died in custody as a result of, well, for want of a better term, torture. Now, so when Emma goes to apply for whistleblower protection, there's this question, was the Pro Protected Act a contributing factor in the retaliation that she suffered? Did she report misconduct? Yes, she did, repeatedly. She complained that we can't disclose the names of Chinese human rights activists to the Chinese government. Anything else? Yeah, actually, she reported her own boss for essentially taking a bribe, or accepting an advantage, right? The guy had written a book of poetry. Apparently, it was really lousy poetry, which he self-published, right? And the Moroccan ambassador paid for this reception for this book launch. And she said, hold on a minute, have you, have you actually read the, the, the ethics rules? It took the ethics office 85 days to review this. The law at that time gave them, I think it was 45. They took 85. It took them 27 pages to explain that she didn't actually have any reasonable belief, to, reasonable grounds to believe that misconduct had occurred. And there was no evidence that Kaohsiung Lee's name was on the list. Right? Um, I emailed her today. She hasn't emailed me back. She first applied for whistleblower protection, I think, in September 13. The last time I looked at the calendar, I was in May 2018. The ethics officer still working on it. That's just the preliminary review. 
was all about this lady. I don't know whether Kao Shun Li's name was not on it or not, but Emma reported that this lady's name was on it. Her name is Rabia Kadir. She's a Uyghur, a Chinese ethnic minority. Where do you suppose she lives? Anybody says China, the answer is wrong. She lives in the state of Virginia. Right? She was granted political asylum in the United States because of you know, harassment from the Chinese government. And the point is, she was a, she's a leading figure in the you know, Uyghur nationalist movement outside of China now, obviously, but she had three sons in prison in China for political offenses at the time. And that was how political pressure, that's how political pressure, that's how pressure was applied against her and there was no open criticism and that's how China got welcomed into the Human Rights Council. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is diplomacy. That's what happens to UN staff members who complain about things. Now, OIOS. How about the internal investigation risk? Let me go on to that. I know about that. That's where I worked. Okay? So, you think what happens is a complaint comes in, it goes to the OIOS investigation division, and they'll do an investigation. Not so. What actually happens is the UN per prefers, particularly in the field missions, right, all manner of corruption and vice and sexual offenses going on in the field missions are not reported to OIOS, but they get reported to the Conduct and Discipline Unit instead. The Conduct and Discipline do not have any investigative authority. Right? All they can do is they can do an assessment. And they can decide whether or not, as a result of that assessment, whether the case should in fact be investigated or not. Now think about that. Imagine a situation in the United States where before you were allowed to report something to the police, you had to report it to another government department who decided whether or not the police should be investigating that. I'm not concerned with the cases that do get reported. This is, comes back to the, the bullet holes in the wings of the B-17s. How many cases go into the bin at that point? And we have a lot of evidence on a piecemeal basis, things that come forward of complaints that went nowhere because conduct and discipline decided there was not enough evidence, there was no evidence, no case here, no investigation. But even if something does go to OIOS, it doesn't automatically get investigated because there's an intake process. And that intake process, they can decide, no, they're not going to investigate it for whatever reason, and they'll put it in the bin. Or they can refer it. Right? And OIOS refers more cases than they actually investigate. And who do they refer it to? Right? Usually to the very department that's got most to gain if the case is dismissed. And that's how come it ends up in the bin. Right? Now, that is a filtering system. Now you start to understand why I wasn't ever given any fraud or corruption investigations to do. Because we didn't have any. Because we keep filtering them out before they get them. But when they do an investigation, right, what exactly does an investigation mean? Well, the reason I was complaining in the first place was when they tried to tell me I was an idiot and they wanted me to sign this performance improvement plan. And the significance of this story is not because somebody was complaining and calling me an idiot. Trust me, I'm old enough and ugly enough to have had many women over the years tell me I'm an idiot, starting with my mother. <laughs> 
closely followed by my sister, if you've ever met her, and, and more ex-girlfriends than you need to know about, right? But basically, the reason I suggested about this one is because it was a it was a slip in the armor, and then it, it disclosed what they actually wanted done. And I was told that I was only to investigate what I was told to investigate, and nothing else. And I was never to ask questions just to satisfy my curiosity. I thought, you know that you employed me as an investigator. You do know that, don't you? Yeah, don't worry about it. Right? <laughs> I was only, yeah, brilliant, isn't it? Only to ask pre-approved questions. Right? And, and then, and also, part two, I had to improve my judgment. Now, I, I don't actually know how judgment can be improved, really. Certainly not over a six-month period with tuition. And who was going to tutor me in this? Uh, the supervisor who was going to pre-approve the questions was going to tutor me in how to improve my judgment. Anything else? <laughs> yeah, I was to uh, learn uh, attend a course in basic English writing and grammar. You've been very polite, by the way. I know I speak with a Scottish accent, for which I can only apologize. You don't appear to have any trouble understanding it. Before I joined the UN, I, I counted them up. I'd had 23 different articles published in different magazines, journals, and whatever. And nobody had pointed out that I'm semi-literate before. <laughs> right? But basically, my argument was that they, couldn't, they wouldn't explain to me what I've done wrong. And I spent the next two years trying to argue that you have to tell me what I've done wrong. And the UN's telling me we don't have to tell you what we've done wrong. You know, like, that's a little bit silly, but never mind. On the question of the investigation, what all the UN wants is a procedure, right? They certainly don't want people who ask questions, right? Three wise monkeys will do just fine, provided you follow the procedure. If you follow the procedure, don't ask questions, it minimizes the chances of actually finding something. You don't want to find something, because this, as I say, it's a filtering system. And the important things that you have to understand is where it goes in the bin there, where it goes in the bin there, where it goes in the bin there. And just to add, you know, salt in it, I'm expected to believe that there's nothing suspicious in the guy who was in charge of the intake function being married to the woman who was in charge of the conduct and discipline function. Okay. So we'll move on. I mentioned there's a labor tribunal yesterday, so some of us are royally sick of that as well. Don't worry about it. There is a UN dispute tribunal. I've crunched the numbers. I need to go back and do more. But basically, all you need to know about that is if a staff member gets a case as far as the tribunal, he's got a one in three chance of winning. What happens if he loses? Oh, don't worry about it. They appeal it. They, they, if the organization loses, they appeal automatically. On appeal, if the organization appeals, they've got a two out of three chance of having it overturned in their favor. If the staff member appeals, he's lucky to have a one in ten chance. Where do you think the judges come from that sit on this tribunal? Why do you think I told you about Heidi Mendoza coming from the Philippines and having an eightfold increase in her salary? It's the best system of justice that money can buy. Romania. Shh. Don't say that. It's rude. 
right? Press coverage. Are we concerned about press coverage? Yeah, the, the UN has a very cozy relationship with the, uh, with the press, certainly the press corps in, in New York. And this is why you'll notice that the mainstream media are not interested in reporting anything negative about the UN. It just offends the sensibilities or whatever. But I'll give you an example of influence of the media. UN missions have been known to set up their own radio stations for, you might call it, propaganda purposes. In Liberia, they set up a radio station on Mill Radio. Had a budget of $1.4 million. Look, I've never set up a radio station, not a commercial radio station, anyway. I don't know how much you would get, what kind of radio station you'd get for $1.4 million in Virginia, in Washington. What I will tell you is that $1.4 million was more than the combined revenue of all the commercial news organizations in Liberia combined. So, I wonder what happens. A lady working for one of the other news organizations, her name was Sunny Morris, off her own back because she believed it was important to do, did an investigation into um, child sex offenses and child prostitution in Monrovia. Right? Little girls is 12 years old having sex for live five Liberian dollars. Don't ask what the exchange rate is unless you want to be offended. What happened? And that was a massive scandal, even in Liberia. What happened to her personally, the journalist? She was immediately hired by Unreal Radio. Right? They paid her four, 16 times more salary than she was getting in her previous job. She was a single mother with a kid in a third world country. Nobody can fault her for taking the job. But they didn't employ her as a journalist. Hell no. They employed her as a public relations officer. So she's not doing any investigation work anymore. And what happened about the child prostitution? Don't worry, nothing to see here, move on. There was no UN investigation, because guess what? There was no UN complaints. The fact that it was written up, that doesn't matter. Now, I have a friend of mine who was a guy I've known for many years, who was a press officer with the Ministry of Defense in the UK. And when I have a press-related question, I usually go and ask him. Don't read that, too many words, right? That was the bit that shocked him, right? On his experiences of the British government, that the UN would reserve the right to deny accreditation to journalists whose organization run counter to the principles of the UN. So we're not going to accredit you as a journalist if we don't like you, if you're critical of us. Well, that's great, thank you. Or if you act in a way not consistent with the principles of the organization. And we get to decide who that is. This, yeah, yeah, everybody knows, well, not everybody. His name is Matthew Lee, right? Matthew runs something called Inner City Press, which is a news blog site, and he is a nuisance to the UN, possibly even more than me, right? And what they did to him eventually, how they got rid of him, was that they withdrew his press accreditation. They withdrew his press accreditation and were so delighted in doing, they physically threw him out of the building and into the street in January in New York. They wouldn't even let him go back and pick up his overcoat from the office. But you've got to understand, there's an old Chinese proverb called killing with a borrowed knife. Uh, they weren't doing it for themselves, no, 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 no. The UN had to act because they had the complaint from 
UNCA, which is the UN Correspondents Association. Who's that? Well, guess what? That's the other press journalist who just sit and recycle all the press releases that come out. He's the only journalist in the United States that does not have the protection of the First Amendment of the US Constitution because he's covering the UN. So there's your press coverage for you. The reality is the mainstream media are bored with it and won't bother covering it. Criminal prosecution, forget it, we have immunity. Civil litigation, forget it, legally blocked because there's no legal mechanism to pursue a civil claim against the UN. Labour tribunal is ever so slightly weighted in favour of the UN. The ethics office, very obvious, an internal whistleblower in the UN is committing career suicide by reporting something. Most of them know it, and that's why they won't report anything, which is why I made the point about the two points, the, the model about there being no corruption in the UN. No corruption because nobody reports any. Nobody reports any because corruption, because uh, retaliation is endemic, and the ethics office aren't going to protect you. And the last one is internal investigations by OIOS. Blind in one eye, can't see out of the other. In terms of protecting an organization, the management of an organization from accountability, that is the envy of the mafia. So, you talk about things like rapes and sexual assaults, right? You've seen this. This is a filtering system. This is how the UN is reporting. The numbers are tiny. However, when journalists will actually go to a place like Haiti, to try and do a story on this. They have no difficulty whatsoever in getting on the ground, asking a few questions, and finding women who will not only admit and talk about being raped, but are prepared to go on television and discuss their experiences of being raped by UN personnel. And there is something particularly abhorrent about putting a girl on television who's being interviewed while she's still wearing a school uniform about being raped by a UN peacekeeper. That being the protection system, we are making slight inroads into it, however, particularly on this question of, of criminal investigation. And that's what myself and my colleagues have been trying to do. I showed you this slide, the UN admitting that we're not going to apply immunity in case of child sex offenses. Right, it sounds good, but you actually have to understand the duplicity and what they actually mean. Quick law lesson for the non-lawyers in the room. If there is a, an action, whether a criminal act, like a rape or an assault, something like that, it can give rise to two courses of legal action, either a criminal prosecution or a civil action. You could sue the person who beat you up. Okay? Now, in the real world, how it happens is, if you have two uh, cases running consecutively once, there's going to be, once the criminal case is ready to pursue and to, to uh, press charges, what will happen is that the civil case will be assisted and basically put on suspension until such times as the criminal case, which gets the priority, is disposed of. Then you can go back and you can pick up the civil case. The UN, of course, does it the other way around. Because of this blanket use of immunity, they will stop. There is no criminal prosecution until the UN will do its own administrative investigation 
and they will get a disciplinary decision and at that point they might, they might then refer it to the local authorities for criminal prosecution. The problem is from the time of the incident to the time that the UN has made a disciplinary decision can be two or three or four years. And there is absolutely no value in going to the police in a place like Congo or Haiti and saying, guess what? Three and a half, four years ago, there was a rape case. The other thing you have to understand is standards of proof. You came here for this, you got a free law lecture thrown in. Right? What does it take to initiate an investigation? The answer is not very much. Right? Probable cause to believe that a crime has been committed, the police will look into it. To get a criminal conviction, however, they have to prove beyond all reasonable doubt that you committed that crime of which you're charged with. And I'm going to call that like a 99% certainty. If it's only a civil case, if you're suing your next door neighbor because their, you know, their cat came and bit your dog or whatever, that's a civil case. The standard of proof there is a balance of probabilities. I'm going to call that 51%. The UN, however, has to do things slightly different because it's the UN and they have a hybrid uh, standard which they call clear and convincing evidence. Brilliant. What does that mean? Well, um, it's more than a balance of probabilities, but not quite as high as beyond all reasonable doubt. Of course, the other significant difference, of course, is that when you're being prosecuted in a criminal court or you're suing in a civil court, that decision as to the, the validity and the strength of the evidence is made by a judge. The UN, the disciplinary decision, is being made by someone who's part of the UN. So they're not exactly an independent arbiter. And the problem is that they have to reach that clear and convincing standard. And you don't want to know the arguments I've had about what I think is clear and convincing and what somebody else insists is not. And if you've been following the UN AIDS uh, sexual harassment case in France, that's what this one's all about. Right? But that is the point. In the UN's uh, world, at the standard at which the, the criminal investigation can start. And basically I call that difference from the probable cause, maybe 5 or 10% likelihood, up to whatever that is, that is the privilege, not just in the, in the, the additional evidence that is required, but in the length of time it's taken as well, before the UN will actually consider referring someone for a criminal prosecution. As far as sexual offences are concerned, one thing is patently obvious. Self-regulation simply has not worked. So, what can we do about it? Is there actually a solution? Complaining about a problem without offering a solution is called whining. I do a lot of things. Whining is not one of them. Okay? The one thing you have to accept is that doing the same thing as we've done in the past isn't going to cut it. When I did speak at the, um, in front of the Congressional Committee that uh, Alison mentioned in my introduction, right, uh, Congressman Smith asked me, well, what are we going to do about it? And I was able to give him um, a suggestion, and it was an idea that I, I would like to claim credit for it and say that this was all my own work. 
the reality is it wasn't. Various other people chipped in, and it was a team effort, but I was the only one who gets to put his name on it. If any of you are interested in a career in academia, there's a tip in that. There are five uh, key measures, right? The immunity has to be wound back to the 1946 convention, right? And stick to the convention as it was, was defined. Something I haven't mentioned is employment in the UN. The UN employs people on a two-year rolling, uh, two-year contracts. The, the effect of that is that it gives your supervisor enormous power and basically discourages anyone from reporting. Certainly you don't want to report your own supervisor because of the, the reason I told you about the whistleblower protection is because guess what's going to happen to you. The third one is the standards of proof which need to be revised. Fourth one is there needs to be a, an external and an independent investigative body. And the last one, I don't like the, the, the wording on this, I'm going to kick it around, but some kind of independent and uh, external and independent decision-making function. Okay? Well, number three on the standards of proof. To fire someone, you should be able to be sacked them on a balance of probabilities. Because the problem, particularly with sexual offences, is you've got to understand there's no forensic evidence, there's no scene of crime capability in the UN. If there's a rape in the, U in the US, if a girl is raped in Washington, and she gets to the police in time, body, hair, fluids, any other, it's all, for, it's all evidence. You can trace, you know, spit and lick stains and other disgusting things. There's DNA evidence in that. If you can get it and you can collect in time. A girl can walk into a UN mission in Congo and say, I was raped by a UN peacekeeper, and they're going to say, when? Oh, a week last Thursday. Right? Even if she comes in and said, when, and the answer was 15 minutes ago, we do not have a first response capability, so there's no forensic evidence. So it boils down to he says, she says. How do you get clear and convincing evidence on a he says, she says basis? And the answer is you can't. And the question on criminal referrals is this question of anyone else in the world will be investigated for a criminal offence if there's probable cause to believe that they committed the crime. Why should UN personnel be any different? Number four is an external, an investigative body to obviously to investigate two things, criminal acts and mismanagement. OIOS fails to investigate a lot of things simply by defining them very, very narrowly and saying this is a contracts issue. And I can tell you outrageous stories about things that were painfully obvious to a blind man. That, hey, there's, some, there's something wrong here, right? No, no, it's a management issue and they won't look at it. And that's how come procurement fraud is missed out. And the decision-making function, the problem that we've got is, at the moment in the UN, the decision as to whether someone's you know, guilty of misconduct or not, is made by someone who's appointed by the same a US senior official of the UN. And it doesn't actually matter what the evidence against them is. It depends on who they're a friend of. So, on this question of, as I say, it needs a, a new investigative body, the key part there is it's got to be uh, external and independent. And I have suggested something, which in the paper which I gave to Congressman uh, Smith, I described as nuncio. Uh, the worst acronym I have ever been responsible for in my entire life. The only trouble is I still can't think of anything better. 
stands for New UN Central Investigation Office. We did want to say UN Central Law Enforcement, but that's the man from UNCLE. For those of you who are my age, grew up watching that on television. And that doesn't pass it. All right? But what does external and independent have to mean? It has to mean that it's not part of the UN system. It's not another office within the Secretariat. It does not report to the Secretary General at all. It reports directly to essentially what is a subcommittee of the GA. It is not staffed by ex-UN personnel. They've been gargling from the corporate water fountain for far too long. Lost the ability to think independently. It's an organization which is not paid and not administered by the UN in any way. And the last thing is that staff of this organization are ineligible to then go and work for the UN. So you don't have the revolving door syndrome, which you have in other places. And what kind of people do you need? Very simple. Go back and just look at what you have in the private sector, right? which is, guess what, which is where I came from. And you need different investigators of different skills, different uh, backgrounds. And you can get them either on loan from member states or recruited directly. And the interesting thing is, think of the Army Reserve. All right? You've got regular staff and you've got auxiliary staff. Work this out. The reason they make the, the Army Reserve analogy is you don't need thousands and millions of soldiers unless you've got a war on. That's what you have reservists for. And it keeps the cost down. It makes it a cost-effective way of looking at it. The question of reporting directly to the General Assembly right, is the fifth one. That's the, the question of being external and independent. Now you're going to say, hold on a minute. A subcommittee of the General Assembly is not really independent and external. Yeah, well, trust me, it's external as far as the Secretariat is concerned. And look, for crying out loud, they're paying for it. It does give them some right to decide on decisions that should be made. But if the decisions are being made, at, if you like, by General Assembly permanent mission staff, they are not appointed or influenced or controlled by the, by the Secretariat and by the Secretary General. The problem at the moment, again, in terms of if you compare it to the private sector, is the General Assembly look on this as, as though they're the shareholders of the organization, certainly in terms of um, OIOS, and they get a report every year the way that you, if you've got shares in Coca-Cola or whatever, you get a shareholders report and you read it and you throw them in. What's actually required is management, not daily hands-on management, but a board of directors. And there's various functions that need to be overseen. And the, the big one is, is intake. So that when the decision is being made, because not everything's going to be investigated, Fill me with drink and I'll tell you great stories about people that used to send in stories to the, and complaints to the, the UN hotline about white vans full of FBI agents who were following them around trying to assassinate them. The tin hat people, the tin foil because of aliens. It was great. I used to love being on the hotline for that. We had an old lady in a home in, Washington, in Texas who used to phone up and give us a rant. About, and I counted them once. We had a sweepstake. How many times a week does she call? 63. Oh, great, I listened to one of our calls once. That is a filtering mechanism, which would be well to be a lot of. The clear and convincing evidence standard is 
a problem to be gotten rid of. And criminal investigations have to start at a probable cause. Now, as I said earlier, we don't know if that 60,000 victims over 10 years is an accurate figure or not. It's an estimate. You'd be surprised at the hostility that it generated from other NGOs, and people, but it's an estimate. The UN should be able to disprove that and discredit us in a New York minute. Why will they not do so? They won't do so because in order to do that, they'll have to disclose how many cases are reported to conduct and discipline and then dis disposed of at that stage. Nobody has come up with a better figure. We wish they would. The report on fraud and the inability to even identify fraud, that is fact. You can't argue with that. Right? The relationship between corruption the relationship between uh, the UN presence and the corrupt environments with they operate, you're going to say, well, you can't really call that fact. Well, if I can't call it fact, I can call it closing your eyes to the painfully obvious. Willful blindness to the painfully obvious. That model of maintaining conflicts because of the embezzlement of loss of funds, is that, is that a fact? Do you take it? No, possibly not but it is circumstances and evidence which would cause a reasonable person to at least conduct an investigation. Who's investigating that? And the answer is nobody. OIOS is certainly not investigating it. That's not staff misconduct. Sorry, and as I say, the, the question now, if it's happening on one side, is it happening on both? Why is it that we've had peacekeeping missions? I mean, you, you mentioned the um, Doug Hammarskjöld being killed in a plane crash. Yeah, that was before I was born, and I'm 15. Uh, odd. <laughs> a lie. I'm only 37. Okay. There has been peacekeeping in the Congo for 60 years. There's been a peacekeeping mission in Lebanon since 1978. There's something wrong with the model. Those questions are questions which I believe there is evidence, at least, to, su to suggest that they need to be looked at. Because if we don't, and are patently not doing it, we're handing out medals for what exactly? All right? In the service of what? I like to give the last word, unpalatable and unpleasant as though it may be, to a victim. Um, and this was a quotation from a 12-year-old girl didn't even have breasts and he still raped me. That is an indication of impunity, a sign of the impunity in the organization. And that impunity is born of and directly protected by the immunity that the organization has that has to be addressed. I've been speaking for an hour and 20 minutes. Thank you very much for your patience.